This is Factual America. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. By the time this podcast airs, either Argentina, France, or Morocco will be crowned the kings of football. But not all is right with the beautiful game, as we find out in talking with Miles Coleman, writer and producer of FIFA Uncovered. Join us as we discuss soccer and how the World Cup ended up being hosted in a small desert country in the Middle East. Stay tuned. Miles Coleman, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Things are good. Things are things are doing good. Yeah, we've we've our show's been up for about a month, so you know it's it's uh, it's in the world. It's great. Yeah. Well, f- uh, to remind our listeners and viewers, we're talking about FIFA Uncovered, the uh, docu series currently streaming on Netflix. Uh, so welcome and again and congratulations. I know it's been it's always at the top towards the top of the list of things to watch on Netflix, and I imagine you've had a busy last few weeks. Yeah, it's been busy. You know, when when we started work on this, which was about three and a half years ago, um, we always knew it kind of crescendo around. Now there's this little thing called the World Cup, and that was yeah. always <laughs> yeah, it was always part of the plan to kind of ride the very natural wave of. Um, you know, people getting excited about the sport. What I think we never really anticipated, or at least not to this level, is just how much of the discussion and chat and news coverage has been about the off-pitch stuff. And our documentary, I think, is uh, partly capitalizing on that and partly fueling that as well. And... And yeah, so it's been it's been fantastic to see how the how the documentary has been received and has reached people and is prompting conversations, including in people who wouldn't ordinarily talk about the governance of football. And by that, I mean both hardcore football fans and also people, mm. you know, my uh, my family in America, for example, are very interested in this now. And and that's you know that's very gratifying to hear and to see. Well, that's that's interesting. I mean. Uh... The way we usually roll uh, here is uh, we start off by asking the filmmakers what is their film all about. Now, FIFA Uncovered, it seems to pretty much say it all, like uh, Netflix titles send, tend to do uh, these days. But why don't you, uh, for those who uh, have either been under a rock or maybe just haven't uh, had a chance to view this, what, what is FIFA Uncovered all about? Yeah, I mean, I, the title FIFA Uncovered, um, when you know it, it could imply that it's just a, a good a good old look around the building um it's it's much more about the history about of, of fifa and if you tell the history of fifa it's a history of organized soccer over the last hundred odd years um fifa was the organization that was set up uh, to sort of govern and administer soccer on a global level in the early 1900s, but sort of grew and perhaps even metastasized into a multi-billion-dollar organization with serious political clout. And and our series, which is over four parts, kind of looks at at, at a at a how did we get here question. Mm. Um, and it's and that's kind of got two forks. The first, how did we get here, is how did we get to the point where in 2015 FIFA executives were arrested in a luxury hotel in Switzerland just days before they were due to elect the FIFA president. And the second, how did we get here, is how did we get here to have a, a World Cup in Qatar, a country that on the on the face of it, on paper, and in, indeed in FIFA's own technical report, is largely unsuited to hosting a, a sporting event of this nature. Mm. And our kind of feeling was if we answered those two, how did we get here, we'd be telling a story about global sport, about global soccer, about... Um, 
you know, the organization itself and not necessarily just focusing only on the negatives, but sort of talking about some of the positives as well. How did it come to be this sport, which is very cheap and accessible to play, um, kind of conquered the world. And and I realize that this is a, a podcast with a, a focus on America. So when I say conquered the world, it's conquered the world basically minus the U.S., although even that's changing now. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly. I mean, uh, I was born and raised in the U.S., and um, I was one of the few... Early, I've only been an early adopter for one thing, <laughs> and that's probably been soccer. Uh, so I was I'm a bit older than you, but I was what you know I was getting uh, World Soccer magazine. You don't know that. I, I could have uh, I could have had a particularly good skincare routine. This yeah, exactly. Well, probably. Well, I and I the opposite. But uh, the uh, uh, you know four four two and all those, and I remember all this stuff about FIFA and things and FIFA's just loomed large for as long as I've been following the sport. But, I mean, back to those two questions. So that first, the, the second one, I think it was, that you posed, um, how did the small country in the desert land the World Cup? I mean, I think that's what all football fans have been wondering since the day it was announced, and even to this day. Hence why we're sitting here, some of us shivering, watching, talking about a World Cup, which should be uh, held in the summer. So how, d how did this happen? Um, well, first of all, I'm going to and take how much your time cue. do we have to talk? About <laughs> yeah, <that>? exactly. <laughs> Block out the next two hours. I'm, yeah, going to, yeah. I'm going to take your cue, and I'm going to and I'm going to stick with football. Uh, my wife's American, so I'm very used to saying soccer, but I'll, I'll stick I'll stick with football for for mm. the time being. And and yes, at the risk of spoilers, and at the risk of taking up the next three hours talking about it, because it is such a complex question. And mm. and really, our documentary kind of you know we get into some details, but there's so much more out there. Really, if you want it down to a word, the word is money. Money is what brings the World Cup to Qatar. Qatar uh, leads the world in, in one particular measurement, which is very relevant, which is the richest company per capita uh, on, on the planet. And money kind of influenced the way the World Cup was sent to Qatar in, in, in various ways. Uh, on one hand, it's very understandable. As our documentary goes into, um, money was relevant because certain executive committee members these are the men uh, who vote for where the world cup is held at that point in time they were all men doing the voting um the allegations that certain executive committee members were induced with financial payments um that were sort of disguised thinly veiled as development funds but really um, we have no reason to believe that they were spent that this money was spent on development of football and the promises were made money was put on tables um, votes were cast and all of these allegations are strongly denied by those involved uh, both in terms of paying and receiving that money and that's kind of the FIFA corruption that I think a lot of people expected a lot of people before they watched the documentary just assume that that's kind of hmm. the bulk of it it's, it's basically it's, it's dirty money brown envelopes what we discovered and what I think audiences discover on watching the show is that actually lots of the money that was involved in this World Cup vote happened at a far higher level we're talking mm. intra-governmental deals. We're talking about a gas deal made between the government of Thailand and the government of Qatar. Why Thailand? Well, there's a Thai uh, executive committee member who votes for the World Cup. We're talking about fighter jets being sold by the government of France to the government of Qatar. Again, there's a Frenchman who sits on, on that executive committee and votes for the World Cup in Qatar. And again, while these are all, uh, I say this with a legal hat on, these are all allegations, these are all denied by, by the parties involved. There are many people who basically boil the question of how did we get here down to dollars and cents. Mm. And I think, uh, yes, and thanks, thank you for those uh, 
caveats. Not my first those, rodeo. You know, because uh, we do need to make those. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't. Uh, I think we have a large enough presence that we even us have to acknowledge that uh, these are our allegations and nothing, and they have been denied, um, almost to a T. And that, actually, there's there's something on on that I want to talk about later. But uh, so yeah, so it's it's money. I mean. Uh, and that's one one pronunciation I cannot change. I say Adidas. Uh, Adidas is implicated in the early days. Well, not implicated in terms of f the frauds or thing, but it was part of the money that f that flooded in. Um, and I, if I were, is every kit by Adidas is in this World Cup? It certainly seems like it. You know, it, no, it's it's, it's not quite yeah. every. <laughs> but like, but that's I love that because. Yeah. That's what we found is that once you learn about the links between Adidas, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say Adidas, okay, but once you learn, okay. <laughs> once you learn about how far back the links between FIFA and, and Adidas go, that that you know in the 70s and even before Adidas bosses and executives were trying every trick in the book to insinuate themselves into the world of global sports, and yes, that it did involve, um, you know, the accusations of the Adidas executives pay Joao Havelange, who was then the president of FIFA, mm -hmm. money under the table to ensure that the rights for that kind of sponsorship were never put out for tender. Um, it involved whining and dining executives and so on. Um, when you learn about that, those accusations that go back sort of over, you know, like about right. 50 years, and you see the amount of Adidas who, that is at the stadium today, Adidas are still an official FIFA partner, you know, teams are dressed it head to toe in Adidas, um, you know, Argentina, for example, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying uh, that they're an Adidas team. I might be wrong sure. about it. But yeah, I, you just see the sheer amount of Adidas that are there today and you have to go, wow, that was a pretty effective strategy. The, the, those relationships that were forged then in the 70s continue to echo on today. And and a lot of the story is is about um, how Ad, uh, Adolf Dazzler, the founder of Adidas, his son, Horst Dazzler, want you know was it was seen by some as a visionary in in really kicking off sports marketing and i think for me one of the the really cool things about this project as a football fan is i've only ever known sports as something that's a big business with mega sponsorship branding and so on but you don't actually have to go back that far to discover this kind of you know pre-sponsorship era and and really see the birth and and you know you'll know this as someone involved in kind of filmmaking and, and storytelling there's nothing quite as powerful as like the original sin when it comes to a story. There's nothing quite as powerful as finding like that moment, whatever you want to call it, the big bang or the first spark, like the first moment where money and big money and big corporate interests really enter football. And that happens in FIFA, that happens with Adidas and Coca-Cola sponsoring the World Cup. And that's all part of the journey that I think I hope will take you on to figure out how does, well, for a start, FIFA executives get arrested for corruption and how does World Cup come to be decided because of money? Mm. Um, it, it all kind of starts there. And so in telling the history of football, what we try to do is kind of, you know, tell a, really the history of money in football. Mm. I think, well, exactly. And that's the, that's the thing I was going to say. I mean, um, a lot of this has already been covered quite a bit when it broke, you know, and uh, like I said, it was... I remember you. I had completely forgotten about it, but you you talk about that election between Sepp Blatter, the uh, uh, head of FIFA, and was it Johansson who was you know I forgot that that was like a huge story at at the time, um, at least in sort of soccer uh, magazines. But uh, you know, you 
I think you, you're right. I mean, in terms of what your film does and what you must have been conscious of, of what, what are you going to be showing us that we don't necessarily already know? So going in, did you know, I mean, did you know you're going to find out that actually the original sin kind of goes back to money funny, kind of flooding into the game maybe from the late 60s, really more of the early 70s? Or, or is that just part of unpeeling the onion when, you're, when you get started on the project? You know, it, it's a funny one from a documentary-making point of view because the story of FIFA, I, I, I sometimes likened it to, like, imagine doing a documentary about the politics of Norway, right? 99% of people don't know anything about it. Right. Then you've got this, like, 0.5% who know a bit about it, and then you've got another 0.5% who know everything about it. You know, they know every name, they know every detail. So there are plenty of people out there who watched our series and knew a lot of these details and knew about Horse Dazzler. But, you know, I, I'll just talk about myself here. Like, I'm a pretty big football fan and I'd never heard the words Horse Dazzler. Mm. And, you know, the second you sit down and start investigating, start reading books and start looking at the Germans who've covered this story in the past, the, the Horst Dassler story or the Johansson story, and I can pick up 20 of these examples, become fundamental. So it's, a, it's an interesting challenge from a sort of filmmaking, from a storyboarding point of view. How do you tell a story which the vast majority of people know nothing about, but a very small group of people know everything about and still appeal to those two audience? Because we, you know, we want to bring everyone, and especially, you know, it being Netflix, you, you know you're going to hit a wider audience. You're going to be hitting people who are kind of gearing up for the World Cup and see this FIFA thing and go, hey, what's all this about? But you also want to make sure that the people, and the people who know a lot about this, by the way, are journalists and inside football people and exactly the kind of people you kind of need to get on side if right. your show has any chance of you know being taken seriously, which I hope it has been. So what we try to do kind of as from a narrative level is, is almost piece all of this together like a mosaic. And I think a lot of people have gone down one of these rabbit holes before. They've gone down, say, the sports marketing rabbit hole, or they've gone down the Qatar rabbit hole. But very few have pieced it all together in this way and shown that kind of unbroken thread from the 70s to now. So while a lot of what we were doing wasn't necessarily an expose in the, in the traditional sense, it wasn't brand new information. Some people knew this already. What I think we did which was novel was laid all out in that in, in quite a, in a linear way, in a way that kind of brought a, a viewer along from the very first days of FIFA all the way to the present day. You know, that's an interesting point because uh, I'll bring in a, uh, we have a mutual friend, uh, uh, Spencer uh, Johnston, who I'll give a shout out to. Uh, and uh, I met up with him a couple weeks ago and he's like, oh, you got to check this. Well, we knew we were going to have you on. And he says, you got to check on the, out this FIFA doc. Um, and I said, well, does it talk about... So I'd gone down the Trinidad rabbit hole at some point in my life because I said, well, there's this guy in Trinidad who's like really co corrupt, I hear, and runs, <laughs> you know, uh, allegations, I should say. Uh, no, no, he's been indicted by the FBI. Yeah, he's actually... He's resisting arrest. Like, yeah. yeah. You don't <laughs> yeah, have to say right. allegations okay. on that one. Um, but uh, he's like, no, I, you know, but, you know, Spencer hadn't heard about this guy, but I had, you know, but it was like you say, there's so many, I think, and I think we can talk more about this, but I think there's so many, it's not so, there's so much layers, but there's so many threads to this story that also, as you say, I mean, is it nece not necessarily bad that money's flooded into the game, right? You know, because it's, it's how, how, I guess how it's been managed or mismanaged 
and how that money has been used. And one thing that you bring up, um, I've heard the term, but uh, maybe you could explain to our audience, is this idea of sports washing. And I thought that was excellent in terms of looking at that, because it's something that for some of us, we think of some, as something that's way back in the distant past. But you could argue that uh, Russia 2018, Qatar 2022 are, are versions of that, couldn't you? Absolutely. Look, yeah, sports watching, like you say, there are so many ingredients, there are so many countries and territories and so many elements of this story that we spent a very long time all kind of dovetailing together. I mean, and when I say a long time, in like two years, and it's me, it's the director, it's our co-producers, our editors, um, we're all figuring out how to hit all of these topics and themes because this is one of those stories where to take sports watching as an example, if we'd done four episodes and not said the word sports watching, we haven't done our job right. But at the same time, you need to you you need to not only tell the story in a in a kind of chronological way, but you also need to tell it in an emotive way. You need to make people care about it. So sports watching is one of those things where, like you say, it's 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 got its roots in the past. And in a FIFA context, you know, the the sort of the birth of sports watching in FIFA is is the nineteen seventy eight World Cup. Uh, that's where FIFA, um, well, the World Cup's going to be in Argentina, and there's a coup, and a military junta is is installed, and it's the most appalling military junta one could imagine. And FIFA and Joao Havelange is is faced with a, a choice: do we take the World Cup from Argentina and give it to a regime that represents our professed values, or do we keep it there? And actually, one of the clips that we found, sort of buried in the archives, was Havelange saying, "I kept it there because the discipline of the country was so fantastic," yeah. and, and and that was like a kind of a, a sea change in in sport that went from. You know, stuff like the Hitler Olympics was it was almost accidental in the sense that like the Olympics was given to Germany, it wasn't taken away, but there wasn't a sense that, oh, we ought to give sporting tournaments to repressive regimes because it's easier for us as the organizer. Mm. But that's what Havelange said. And Jerome Valk, who's a secretary general of FIFA, right. um, that by that so it's one easy way to think about it, it's almost like the CEO of FIFA, the sort of the highest unelected employee of FIFA. He said the same thing about Russia and Qatar. He said, call me crazy. But having World Cups in, in countries with less democracy is easier for us because we can basically do what we want. And and that's a really concerning thing because I think any sports fan likes to think that their game is pure and good and represents the positive things in life. FIFA themselves, so they have these kind of platitudes and these statutes where they say, we want football to be a force for good. And it's pretty hard to argue with that. And then on the other hand, they are not just tolerating tournaments going to repressive regimes, but actively promoting it, actively seeking that out. And so, you know, to answer your question, what, you know, what is sports watching? Sports watching on its most basic senses is repressive or illiberal regimes using sport and the kind of reflected glory of sport to burnish their own reputations, either domestically or abroad. And I think Qatar and Russia were certainly examples of that. Um, you know, it, it I say money can't buy it. Obviously, Qatar spent a huge amount of money, about $300 billion hosting this World Cup, but the PR it's getting from it is, is arguably priceless. And, you know, you and your listeners might think, but, but hang on, isn't everyone criticizing Qatar, right? Isn't, it, isn't everyone muddling at Qatar? And I think that's almost like, that's one way of looking at sports watching is does the person on the street, does the man or woman on the street go away with a warm, fuzzy feeling of Qatar? This is a level above that. When Qatar are using sport for political purposes, what they're talking about is almost at like a national security level. It's about 
con making concrete Qatar's sovereignty. So before 2022, no one's really heard of Qatar. You're not really sure it is. Now, everybody knows where Qatar is, knows it's a sovereign nation, knows it's important. That's a huge deal in a geopolitical mm -hmm. sense. It sounds really simple, but that's priceless. It's about identifying Qatar's place as a sort of leader of Middle Eastern um, politics, sort of the spearhead of Middle Eastern identity. Again, when you see how Morocco's success in the tournament has been politicized by people in the region, you know, say people saying, oh, it's great that we brought the Arab World Cup, the World Cup to the Arab world because Morocco have done really well. Again, we start talking about it in these really nationalistic terms. And basically, this is all to say that what Qatar are doing, it's, it's not a simple case of oh, we're putting on a football match, so we hope you'd like us. It's much more about sport being used on a massive geopolitical level. And again, I come back to this as a football fan. That makes me uncomfortable because I don't want my game to be used as a kind of, you know, a political bargaining chip. I want it to be used as a game. Right. And I think, <clears throat> and then to go back to the sort of woolly side of it, I know you said it's not that level of PR, but when it's all said and done, I mean, given the given this particular World Cup, I think, you know, Unfortunately, or maybe, uh, you know, decades from now, people will remember that amazing Qatar 2022, which had some of the most exciting games in any World Cup history and potentially and stuff like that. And, you know, that's that's Russia was kind of similar, though they've they've done <laughs> they've done some things to uh, upset that uh, PR uh, game that they uh, maybe uh maybe achieved. Um, I think this takes us to a good point for a quick uh, break for our listeners. So we'll, walk, um, we'll, um, we'll be right back with Miles Coleman, producer and writer of the new Netflix docuseries. Not that new, it's been out for a month. Uh, FIFA Uncovered, currently streaming on Netflix. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Miles Coleman, producer and writer of the new Netflix docu-series, docu-series, I should say, FIFA Uncovered. Um... So, Miles, we've been talking about sports washing, and um, it's interesting because um, I think it's, I don't know if his official title was CEO, but the CEO of the Qatar bid is on, is interviewed a few times. Um, talks about, that's the other thing, you know, one of this marketing says sports in their blood, that's why they want to bring the uh, game. Is corruption in FIFA's DNA? Oof, that's a big question. One that will have... Um, lawyers all across the world with, waiting with bated breath to see how he sticks his foot in it. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, honestly, no. Corruption should not be, it should not be in DNA. That's pretty self-explanatory. But like FIFA started as an amateur organization up until relatively recently. And I say relatively recently, up until the 70s, but for the first 70 years of its, of its history, it yeah. it is not an organization that is sort of about money. It's not it's not its raison d'etre. It's basically it's its existence is about making sure that team A can play team B in a cup. Right. And so to say it would sort of corrupt from its founding would be that that would be wouldn't be fair. But what I what I think is really interesting from a storytelling perspective, and you know, if you have listeners who are listening to this going, well, I'm not sure if I want to watch FIFA on cover because I'm not that into football. What I would say is that this is a story about human nature and it's a story about politics. It's about what happens 
when you let an organization with immense money in the bank and immense power and very greedy individuals running it, what happens when you let that organization run amok? And I like to think of this as a Petri dish. And when we were sort of putting the, the, the documentary together, we, that's how we sort of saw it. It was a laboratory for corruption and the human condition and unchecked greed. And what, what gives it that little extra ingredient is that football is so beloved, nobody wanted to check on FIFA. Nobody wanted to kick the tires and see what, you know, look under the hood and see what was going wrong. Arguably, the reason the whole thing came falling down is because the FBI, based in America, where, you know, football is not a sacred cow, right. um, were able to get involved in this and, and work relatively undetected. And if you look around the world, there have always been corruption pros about football, but they've been so heavily politicized because so many people in those countries go, don't touch my game. I don't care how it's run. I just care if my team wins. And America never really had that attitude. So is FIFA corrupt to its soul? No. But does FIFA have the conditions around it to allow corruption to thrive? It all, yes. And it still does, in my opinion. And and. To this point you're making about what the film's about and a study of and it's an, in human nature. Um, and let's go to this period that has been documented where uh, obviously FIFA had its issues with, with corruption and, and these sort of things. You get almost all the, I mean, almost all the people that are involved go on camera. How did you manage that? I mean, and weren't there, speaking of lawyers, you've mentioned lawyers a few times. I mean, they must have had their lawyers just off to the side thinking, oh my God, what, why is Seth Blatter deciding to be interviewed for this documentary? So let me, let me start with the flip side, which is, of course, we didn't quite get everyone. You there didn't get a couple everyone. of individuals who, who, we, who we didn't get, like Jack Warner, who I chatted to on the phone and we, we <laughs> went to Trinidad. And, and that was a whole experience. But. And, and and Michelle Platini was the yeah. second one. You know, out of the out of the fifty names that we wanted to get, I think we didn't get two, and those were those two. And I, I almost think it reflects worse on them, given that forty eight of them uh, did speak. But in in terms of the people we speak, yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me that. And I look I, as a producer, I'd love to say the reason we got them is because I'm brilliant at my job. But yeah. but the reality is, these are individuals who like publicity, who like the limelight, who made their career through talking. And, you know, they are politicians. Politicians, what they do is they get up in the morning, they put on their time, they talk in front of cameras. To them, a camera is like giving a carpenter a hammer. It is their tool of work. And a lot of these individuals feel that they have done nothing wrong. They feel maligned. They feel like they have done very good jobs. They are surrounded, by the way, by people who tell them that all day long. So why were people agreeing to speak and, you know, like you say, speaking pretty freely? It's not like they were kind of sat with lawyers next to them saying, do this, do that. No, the reason is because they feel untouchable. They feel very adept in front of cameras. And they generally feel that they have a positive story to tell that isn't being um, heard. Mm -hmm. And from our side, you know, I, I, I sympathize to a certain extent with that. And, and we wanted to give people a platform. These are people who've been judged in the courts of public opinion for many, many years. And we wanted to give them a platform to really give their side of the story, especially now the dust has settled. Asking Blatter for his opinion in 2015, when all this was hitting the fan, very different to 2022. And he can sort of call it how he sees it. Mm. And, you know, he was saying stuff in our interview that whether you agree with it or not, I found utterly compelling him saying, I don't take responsibility for what happens. 
you you know you can you can say that that's not fair but you can't say that's not what Sepp Blatter truly thinks I think that was his honest assessment of it well that's what I was going to ask because I want to talk a little more about Blatter and and the rest but uh, I mean this isn't a Robert McNamara fog of war moment I mean he's uh, if I'm spoiler alert but uh, but it's in other ways in so, in some ways more compelling because of as you say um, they're all most of them are acute they they all express their innocence but it seems they also acknowledge that seems like everyone else may have had their issues, <laughs> but they were okay. You know, that what they did, did wasn't wrong. So, so they're unrepentant, or maybe, well, not that that's what we're looking for necessarily, but uh, do they firmly... So do you think... Sepp, some, let's take Sepp Blatter, Blatter as an example. Do you think he literally thinks he did nothing wrong? Sepp Blatter looks at this and goes, all these people are arrested and I wasn't one of them. He thinks I've never been found guilty of a crime. He was tried in Switzerland um, in, in this summer of 2022 for fraud, found not guilty. And he looks at it and, and, and by the way, you know, he's not the only one. There are plenty of people who agree with this. And he would say there is a reason that you can go into any cafe or bar or restaurant from Bolivia to Bhutan and talk about football. And that's because it grew under my watch. He would say he left FIFA richer, more famous. Uh, football players have got better. Different, you know, he would look at something like Morocco going through to the World Cup semi-finals and playing in about an hour as we record. He would look at that as as a, a marker of his own success, his his very de deliberate policy to de develop football in nations that were outside of the global north. Now, whether that is true or not, again, I'm almost putting to one side and, and saying when I step into his psychology, I can absolutely believe that he thinks that. And even if there's a part of himself that doubts it, he is so adept at selling himself that, that that's the message he's going to push all day long, which makes for us as filmmakers an incredibly compelling interview. You know, you are, you're meeting someone who has that almost Trumpian ability mm. to block out all of the externalities, all of the noise, all of, and, and, and simply focus on pushing himself and his, you know, his, his personal brand, his, his political legacy. It, it, it's a remarkable study, again, in just politics and politicians. I mean, exactly, and it's not. And should stress to uh, to those who haven't seen it, it's not just bladder. It's it's most of them, if not all of them, to a T. They all have they all have the same sort of. Um, I don't know what it is, but the skill or or whatever it is to to to. Um, My people, we we call it chutzpah. Chutzpah. Well, yeah, your people. Yeah, okay. Now that I know that you're a member of the tribe, uh, they, <laughs> uh, yes, it is chutzpah. It's, um, yeah, hubris, and, uh, whatever, you know. It's, the it's... thing that's amazing about that as well is, like, let's take someone like Ricardo Teixeira, who appears in our documentary very mm -hmm. briefly, right? He's, he's yes. in maybe yes. 90 seconds of screen time, tops. He is a behemoth of a figure in world football. He is worth hundreds of millions. He is accused of astonishing crimes by the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice. And he's but a small part of our our of our documentary if you were to when we made our list starting this of the sort of 700 people we wanted to speak to the most or 700 people involved in the story the top 200 are such colossally important figures it's kind of hard to imagine you know you expect this pyramid organization perhaps bladder at the top and everyone doing their bidding the top three four hundred people in fifa are so unbelievably important mm -hmm. and so aware of their self-importance it answers a question of both how why did they choose to appear in our documentary but also it answers the questions of how did fifa grow to the point 
where it just collapsed under itself, its own self-importance. The people involved were such, I mean, it was the, the atmosphere around them was such sort of alpha male testosterone, money. Um, and, and when you watch the World Cup, I would encourage your listeners to yeah. watch the World Cup with those eyes and look at those VVIP seats, that band of seats around the halfway right, line. Right, right. And those shots of the guys sat in the big, comfy armchairs. And just, you know, just let that self-importance just drip through the coverage. It's just incredible. That's exactly where I always remember seeing Michelle Platini. And I guess he's not there anymore, or in those seats, or does he get to still show up? Because he's he's suspended along. He's with banned from football. Oh yeah. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I think, and I and just to raise this point that you just raised just now, I mean, it is, it's 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 a if poli- it's a political doc. It is in that sense, you know, it is very much this unknown government that uh, we never really knew ex- it kind of existed, you know? And that, I think that's another thing yours does. I mean, people have heard about scandals, maybe they've heard different things, but that it's all the, like you said, human nature and how people interact with each other and the wheeling and dealing to win uh, uh, this the office that uh, Bladder and now uh, Infantini holds and have lunch before Bladder. It's, it's pure all, politics. It's, it's pure, pure uncut Colombian politics. It it's is. mad. It and, is. And, it's, you know, there are all these, like, little stories, like, for example, no building in the world has ever had diplomatic immunity, other than, of course, an embassy, yeah. except for FIFA. FIFA has had two different confederation buildings have diplomatic immunity, Comnebol in South America, and today, the only building in the world with full diplomatic immunity is the CAF headquarters in Cairo. That means that if the head of CAF were to butcher his deputy in the basement, he couldn't be arrested by the police. Like, when you talk about, like, that's not ersatz politics, that is political immunity, that's political clout. And it's, you know, from our side, it's just staggering that their duty to organize football matches has has grown into this. Mm And, you, and if that happened, you'd have a, another doc on your hands, wouldn't you? Um, I mean, uh, now how, yeah. did, how did this project come about? I mean, besides, you know, saying, hey, wait a minute, there's a, a World Cup in Qatar in three and a half years or whatever. Because, um, so, you know, it's, it's not the, it wasn't the easiest doc to make, I imagine. No. No, uh, as you as you said that, I just suddenly had the sort of Vietnam style flashback stuff flooding <laughs> over me with all of the sleepless nights. And you yeah. know, we did this over a pandemic as well, which That's right. I know yeah. is not very pretty dull to talk about, but a lot of it was done like you and I talking now, just you know, over Zoom, and and that was very hard. You know, it's one thing to sort of investigate corruption and get all these people to sit; it's another to do it and make sure that none of them get COVID. And by the way, they're all pretty senior citizens so <laughs> that was that was a, a real serious consideration i mean the, the sort of the genesis of the project was that dan the director and john um fellow producer who have been making films together for about 18 years mm. uh, with a sport focus at the heart of it had always kind of had their eye on this story and david con uh, who's a story consultant and appears very prominently in the in the documentary he wrote mm. a book about the FIFA corruption scandals right. was published in 2017 and that you know it's not the documentary of the book um, but that book was very much the kind of the, the starting whistle to use a football metaphor. Mm. And those, I mean, there's that book. There's a there's a two or three books that are mentioned. Uh, do, do you recommend them? Do they are they all worth a read? I mean, I do this kind of thing. 
I do. And I, I think what's fun about the books is every author takes a different position on it. So David yeah. Conn's book is a very sort of, you know, it, it focuses on the FIFA politics and, and what happened in, in the halls of FIFA. And then you've got Ken Bessinger's book, who is a much more US focus. It talks mm -hmm. about Chuck Blazer and Jack Warner and right. also the Latin American corruption, which we don't get into as much, but how the Latin American sports marketing agencies, um, were racking up these enormous, enormous mm. um, kind of bills on on corruption, and 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 the stories there are just absolutely jaw dropping. And then you've you know there, what's amazing about FIFA is that every single country is in FIFA, so every country has its own little mini Russian doll version of this scandal with its complete with you know with their own sets of characters like i remember filming in uruguay for this and hearing about like the uruguayan head of their football association and it's like we could franchise this documentary out to every single country <laughs> and just make a story about their own football association because they're also kind of they're also mad um so yeah like one of you know in all seriousness one of the things that i hope our documentary does is serve as a primer as a playing field level for people to go out and learn more our documentary is is a uh, you know it, it's a it's a one percent it's it's the it's the overview it's the thirty thousand foot view. There are right. so many more interesting stories out there for people to go and discover. I hope they do that. Okay, and and in terms of telling that story, we've we've we've, we've touched on this a few times, but um, you know, it, it would have been very. It, it's it's not as as you said it's not a straightforward story. It's, there's a lot of threads there. You Dan Gordon was. Uh, so he did Hillsborough with with John Batsick, didn't he? Um, Correct. Yeah. I mean, um, I, what I I mean, back to this whole conversation we're about the the political doc and the individuals. I mean, did you he you do hear his voice now and then in talking with the subjects, and uh, he he did you, there was there is an effort to push them to answer uh, questions, but they don't they don't bite. I I know, <laughs> you know? what you're getting at absolutely. You know? like, yeah, yeah. It's it the the philosophy behind the doc, if that's not too pretentious or grand a word, was no. It's not. It was never designed to be one of those projects where we get nasty people up on stage and berate them and do the documentary equivalent of right. throwing rotten tomatoes at them in the town right. square. We right. could have done that. That like you know that's that that's a that was available to us, but it really wasn't the, the idea of the doc. The idea of the documentary is we wanted the people who were in the room who saw this unfold tell their version of the story and tell it in their own words and put all of those pieces together in a way that not only literally tells, you know, narrates a story, mm. but also shows the different versions and shows the, you know, the different perspective and often the cognitive dissonance of those involved and allows the audience to make up their own mind. Now, I know that for some people, they might've watched a documentary and gone, I wish they just yelled at person X. I wish right. they had just shamed person Y. Yeah. That really wasn't the kind of the guiding and it's never really been Dan's style either. No. And, and in certain interviews, I think where that does come out is people are almost left to explain themselves into a trap. Uh, they are given the room. And, and, and I think personally, as a documentary viewer, I think that's often more powerful. It's not about the filmmaker. It's about the people involved in front of the camera. Well, no, I would, I mean, just personally, I would completely agree with you. I thought that was extremely well done. And that's, it, it kind of, not that it surprised me, because I would expect it from uh, from you all, but I think it was also, no, no, I see where this is going. I mean, and how it's being, and then just the, and, and not the, you know, it wasn't even down to editing, just this, 
this guy has this story and then you turn right around and someone else says in the same room same conversation has a totally different story which is life we often encounter this and to see yeah whether you know make up our own minds but just to even it's it's this it's this uh, personality study that's uh, just just absolutely uh, uh, and i hope people compelling. can see that there's there's a degree of you know we really respect people who sit and tell their stories they give up their time they give up their thoughts and and this was no joke for a lot of people you know there are plenty of people involved in this who suffered greatly as a result and whether you whether you like someone or not it's exactly. it's by the by there's there's absolutely like we wanted to cut the process of pathos respect for people who are giving their time respect for their opinions and their views and and very much like the audience decide i think that's not only like ethical filmmaking i actually think it makes for the best mm, film yeah. uh, end product yeah and uh you know more than one of these uh some of them crusty old characters get a tear come to their eye i mean they obviously lived through this and it's had different uh you know how it's impacted them so i agree i agree now i, I mean in terms of you know uh, you adventureland and and uh, i know you're kind of relatively um well i wouldn't say early stage of your career but you're you know uh uh i mean what is what are you f learning that what is the key to getting a I guess there's two questions. What's the key to a good doc? And then what's the key to getting a doc financed and made, which are probably two de very different questions. But uh, what are you learning as, as, as you go down this journey? That's a good question. Um, what makes a good documentary? Absolutely no idea. And anyone who tells you that they have a clue <laughs> is lying. <laughs> okay. It changes. It changes all the time. I, that's one of the most amazing things about documentaries. If you look at where documentaries now at the end of 2022 and, and where it was five years ago and 10 years ago it's such different places people want such different things and we also know in the documentary industry that that hits absolutely have these sort of ripple effects you know the the success of something like tiger king has brought a wave of projects that are very much trying to follow that style the success of tinder swindler will will do the same right, right. and um, in some ways what we want to do at Benchland is is kind of stay true to the stuff that we like so again that's that style of filmmaking that I think we all brought to this the whole team prosaic thoughtful considered um it's sort of something that's always run through certainly John and Dan's work um, but no one knows what makes a good documentary you don't know until you see it I mean with days to go on the edit of this we're all as everyone is on every project just tearing your hair out going god i hope this works and you're just sort of smushing it all together and then you step back and you hope that people enjoy it and it's been really gratifying to see that people seem to have enjoyed this mm. um and the second question was like well how, how do you get, get stuff a, how do you <laughs> get it financed and made because there's a lot of i think there's probably a lot of great ideas out there that never see the light of day and there's like not to name names but there's some stuff that you wonder how it, <laughs> how it gets made, you know, sometimes. So uh, to, to put it... Uh, Absolutely. You know, right? yeah. it's, it's, a, it's such a moving target and, and it changes. And I think what's really interesting is how, as we move towards that streamer model, data is influencing what, what gets made. And, and that means often things that, are, that will be very popular can trump stuff that is, you know, more... Um, how can I put this? That that's just more unique. You know, I can't imagine walking into a room tomorrow and pitching a documentary about beekeepers and honey in northern Macedonia. <laughs> right? It's it's I, like I I look at that and I'm I, I love that film. I loved Honeyland, and I don't 
I don't know how it was how it was made because it was just it's such a unique idea. But that's again one of the wonderful things about documentary is that it it, it has the ability to confound and you can expect the unexpected. And I think what's interesting about documentary, especially now, is how in a world where you open up Netflix and you've got FIFA uncovered and then you've got, I don't know, the next Marvel film or you've got The Crown, right? Our documentary has to be as entertaining, as bombastic and sexy and thrilling as anything with a $200 million budget and actors and a script that's literally written down. And so to to that extent, I mean, I think the FIFA story is an example of a story where it just, from the moment you sink your teeth into it, it feels stranger than fiction. It feels more entertaining than any script one could ever write. And those stories are out there. That's what our day job is, is trying to trying to figure those out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 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 I think that the future is amazingly bright for documentaries. And I love the fact that, you know, when one of the comments I read a lot on Twitter, and I probably shouldn't have scrolled Twitter as much as I did <laughs> when this was out, but I did, it's like, it's unavoidable, was people saying, okay, now do a FIFA Uncovered for this, do a FIFA Uncovered for the mm-hmm. political scandal in my city or for my football club or whatever it was. Like, people want more documentaries made about the topics that interest them, rather than where I think the conversation was like 10 years ago, which was, okay, when are we going to do a movie of this? Like, wh- who's going to play Chuck Blazer? Like, I didn't read that that much. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like that was the natural next step for documentary. It was much more like, okay, let's do a new documentary for this topic or that topic yeah, it'd be hard to <clears throat> excuse me it'd be hard to find someone to play chuck blazer uh, but anyway uh <laughs> I've, I've heard rumors of will ferrell's <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh wow yeah i could uh with the with the fat suit yeah that yeah, could you uh, yeah yeah you never know um hey with the i think we're coming to the end of our our, our time together miles uh believe it or not but uh i i I like doing this uh, thing where I look at people's IMDb profiles or even Wikipedia profiles and seeing how much of it is accurate. But uh, uh, I don't have a Wikipedia. I'm nowhere near uh, important enough no, to have a Wikipedia. Well, there's some people who are not important at all who have large Wikipedia <laughs> pages. But uh, I think it looks like you've got the dream job. You're making films about football and James Bond. I mean, uh, that would be a lot of people's uh, dream. Uh, but what's what's next for you and in, uh, in, in Ventureland? Can you can you say about any anything about projects you're working on now? Well, we've had um, our, the premiere, the London premiere for our Abbey Road documentary, If These Walls Could Sing, was on Monday night, which I was a producer on and was just an absolute joy to work on because, yeah. yeah, music, uh, music is a big passion, but also it definitely kept me sane and optimistic during the making of this. Um, I sort of likened making FIFA Uncovered to being a vegan in a sausage factory. I mean, it's just, it will get to you. So I'm very, uh, the next thing I'm working on is a football project, which I can't talk too much about, but I hope it will restore my faith in the beautiful game after three years of taking a bruising. We've got some really fun music projects lined up and and all sorts of things. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think anyone who, grew up watching football and grew up watching sport. Mm. It's such a, a joy and a privilege to work in it. And even even the darker side feels important and relevant and, and purposeful, which is great. Okay, so one last question. I'm going to put you on the spot. We're down to Argentina, France, and Morocco. Who's going to win? Because this is keep in mind, this is probably going to air afterwards. So it's like yeah. So I, I need to, I'm going to record three different versions. You're just gonna, <laughs> it's going to be Morocco to win four one, and then I want you to edit that and just get this guy's savant. Um, I I spent a lot of time in Argentina. 
of good friends in Argentina. My heart says Argentina, and I've done a film about like about Messi, and and I I love the idea of Argentina winning it, winning it, and Messi just sort of riding out on a golden horse. But it ain't gonna happen. It's gonna be France to beat Argentina in the final. It, it'll be Gallic, and it'll just be the, the the footballing equivalent of a Gallic shrug, just like a universal <laughs> Gallic shrug. I, I hate to say that, and then and then if I'm wrong, just like this yeah. will be a f- permanent record that I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to football <laughs> and many things, yeah. but I think it's France. Uh, Yourself? What do you reckon? I, yeah, I'm kind of similar to you. I, I do want Argentina to, to do it. I mean, I think if anything, Messi's really showing us how to go out, uh, how to age gracefully as a footballer, I, I must say. I mean, obviously he's got the talent, but uh, uh, yeah, I you know would like to see Argentina pull it off, but I do have this sneaking suspicion that you're correct about about France in the end of the, at the end of the day uh, and at least I control the uh, literally control the narrative here so I I can re-record this and uh, and uh, be right in the end but uh, I just I'm, want uh, for, for the listeners posterity what was actually said during the recording was Matthew said Morocco to win the World Cup and anything <laughs> anything that comes out was uh, a very dubious re-edit because he's an American he has no clue what he's no talking clue. about yeah, he, said he, like, was a, he said he was a football fan but you know we, we don't buy it not in that n- not at all not at all i mean i mean just real quick you mentioned you worked on a messy doc did you did you meet him did you, did no. you work with no 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 we we went to it was one of my like first jobs and we went to um we went to rosario and we filmed in his hometown right. and we right. filmed on the street where he grew up and I, i've never actually met him part of doing this i've got to meet a lot of footballers that i like and admire and i've never met him and everyone who knows him says yeah you don't really get to talk to them that much <laughs> he's not he's not one of the world's great conversationalists it's not like muhammad ali where it's you know you you want to like sit around the dinner table right. with him forever and ever um but that being said the man's really good at kicking a ball into a into a net so let's hope he does it on the bigger stage well amen well uh miles thank you so much uh just to remind our listeners and viewers we've been talking with miles coleman producer and writer of the netflix docuseries FIFA Uncovered. Do check it out. It's well worth a watch, even if you're not a football, soccer fan, sports fan, whatever. It is an interesting study in human nature. So thanks again, Miles. It's a pleasure having you on. And uh, yeah, we got to kick off in just under 45 minutes. So that gives you enough time to to do whatever you need to do to get settled in and uh, get some snacks and a beer or two or whatever your favorite beverage get, is. Get to Edgeware Road and, and, and watch it with a Magus sandwich is, is, <laughs> I think that's the best way to watch this. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, thank you. Take care. I also would like to thank those who helped make this podcast possible. A big shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio in York, England. Big thanks to Amy Ord, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show and that everything otherwise runs smoothly. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners. Many of you have been with us for four incredible seasons. Please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. Please also remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. 
Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk. Thank you.